Hello, I'm Jeremy Lair, and welcome to this special edition of The Money Movement. I'm here in London, England, sitting above the city of London, here with Nick Carey, the co-founder and vice chairman of Blockchain.com, one of the most long-standing companies in this space and a real crypto OG. Super excited to have Nick here today. Nick. Great to see you again. Welcome. Uh, it's amazing to be back together. We have a lot of symmetry. Yes. Uh, we met almost a decade ago in Dublin here in Europe. Um, yes. And I remember uh, you were pitching Circle, and it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my, there's some amazing professional people showing up to this. <laughs> and uh, our very first office in London um, was actually just 100 yards away from here. So it's a bit emotional to be returning to this uh, space here. So thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely, Nick. This is awesome. So I'm really excited for this I want to use this opportunity because you are someone who I think just has some of the broadest perspective on crypto like in the world, right? You've been involved in this just as long as almost anyone, maybe aside from Satoshi uh, <laughs> or that group uh, uh, early on. But we're going to do a little bit of origin story to start, and then we're going to do a little bit of fundamental economic philosophy with respect to all this stuff, because yep. I think that's something that's core to all of this. And then I hope we can carry the conversation all the way to today and, and what's happening where, you know, as always, you know, Bitcoin was born out of a, a geopolitical and geoeconomic crisis. Yep. We're finding ourselves in an interesting geopolitical, geoeconomic world again. But take us back to your own, you know, getting involved in this space the time, the place. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and, and how you came into this in the first place. Yeah, thanks. So I think all entrepreneurs start off with, you know, earning their first buck doing something. Mine was selling clams from the Long Island Sound to my neighbors. And I wanted to buy a boombox and acquire things. Um, and that's how I kind of got started. Started building websites and then built a CRM company called Pipeline CRM. But I was always interested in how businesses operate, and uh, my family was really international. My dad lived in South America, my mother's French. So the, seeing the frictions of even just making payments was always sort of uh, observable in my life. And when I learned about Bitcoin in 2011, at first, I was incredibly suspicious of how something um, could actually work that way. But after spending over a week uh, completely obsessed with understanding what the yeah. implications were, it became very obvious to me that I would need to spend the rest of my life working on this. And it was really at the intersection of politics, money, and wealth creation. Totally. And when you mapped all that onto a technological fabric, the opportunities were immense. And so I got into it basically out of a real interest in economics and yeah. studying statistics. And so my fellow co-founders all here based in the UK. So we were founded in York in the middle of nowhere, the original one. To when, when was that? Was 2011. That was 2011. Yeah, yeah we, the uh, website registration blockchain for blockchain.info, yeah. which was the OG website for looking at uh, the transactional history on the Bitcoin network, yeah. um, was registered October 15th. So uh, we celebrate that in the firm now. The one thing we wanted to do at the beginning was really just take a look at whether or not there was real economic activity happening on this network. I think some of the earliest arguments were, well, no one's using this stuff. Right. It'll never work. It's only for internet geeks. And what we've learned over the last decade is that there's just been an ever-increasing expansion of the market for a variety of different reasons. But at the time, we wanted to make sure that there was more things happening. So we built 
essentially something called a block explorer, which is just a search engine for looking at originally the Bitcoin blockchain. Yep. We've since expanded that to a whole bunch of new chains, but at the time that was the only one. And this was, the community was really small back then. There were a few hundred people talking on internet forums and coordinating globally to sort of experiment in the early days. And that was the first thing we built. And what we learned was there was an economic activity happening. And uh, people were really using Bitcoin to do things like move money over the internet. What a powerful idea, being able to transact precious information between two people without centralized authorities on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, making it as easy to send money over the internet as sending a text message or an email. And I've heard some of these things from you, so I am... Uh, I'm stealing some content from you, <laughs> but um, paraphrasing maybe. Anyway, what we did next then was build a wallet system. And we knew if uh, Bitcoin was ever going to become adopted, it was going to have to get easier to use. And so we went about building a tool that would make it possible for anybody in the world to be able to send, receive, secure, and then trade and exchange digital forms of money. And so we built the blockchain.com wallet. It's now the most widely adopted uh, non-custodial wallet in the world, which is an important distinction yeah. we'll need to get into in a little bit. But that wallet's available for free for anybody. We've had 80 million people sign up yeah. to use that. I, think I started there. And, and uh, yeah, I started, started, started I love there. hearing that. And yeah. as a founder of a you know company, as soon as you see your product out in the wild and people using yeah. it, you know, you really get to connect with your community. Those users have now over the last decade transacted over $1.2 trillion worth of transactions on chain. And um, we now serve users in over 200 countries. And so the distance we've traveled in that uh, last decade um, has been monumental. And there have been some pretty interesting lessons along the way. But yeah. one of them is, is just the global nature of all of this, which I, I know you're really aware of as well. But um, this thing doesn't just belong to Silicon Valley or Singapore, or Dubai or London. It was really a, a globally lifted technological and now cultural movement. And uh, I still think we're, we're seeing we're in the early days a decade ago. We're still totally evolving, but the conversation's changed a lot. Yeah, it has. I had a very similar experience to you in terms of, you know, in 2012, I had, like, I learned, I was kind of hearing about it, and then I was like, yeah, I don't know. And, and, but, then, <laughs> but then, you know, I, I spent time with it and had that, like, this is going to be bigger than the web. This is going to be so much bigger and reached a lot of similar conclusions. And similarly, it was like, I, I'm going to commit the rest of my career to this, right? Yep. Like, this is so clearly going to have that kind of impact, bigger impact, right? We're starting to see that now. And we're still in the early days. Like, we're, we're really, this is really early stage. And that's cool because it's so big already, but it's still early when you think about what it's going to mean for billions of people to be using digital currency and interacting over this, it's mind-blowing for sure. But I want to go back to the early days again. And I also, by the way, have, have some background in economics and, and political science. And, and so we sort of came at this, was also a software technologist, right? So kind of came at this through a, that lens, that kind of global political economic lens as well. And it sounds like that was important to your own journey into this. And so just maybe just talk about philosophically, what did you see, what did you understand, what did you believe about Bitcoin and what that meant in that realm? Yeah, so I studied political science, wrote a thesis in economics and have a degree in business leadership. And I uh, actually wrote my thesis on Shackleton, which oh, was yeah. so cool because yeah. I recently just found, found uh, ship. the ship. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, a lot of the same sort of uh, building blocks there. I think for me, you know, 
The conversation about what is money is such a fascinating one. And if you have that conversation with parents or family members, you get a lot of different answers. Like, well, I think it's this cash I hold or it's this concept that enables me to do things. And so, you know, most people, if we take a step back, we spend our entire lives in pursuit of accumulating money and wealth. We're trying to improve our standard of living. We want to acquire possessions. We want to enable outcomes for our family members and pursue endeavors in the world. So, you know, in the context of that, like, well, what kind of money should I be trying to acquire? And if we're to, you know, invent a form of money for the age of the internet, what would that really look like? Yeah. And if you really think about humans, you know, money is a tremendously ancient concept. It's prehistoric. Yeah. We find uh, relics and tombs in uh, Scotland that come from the Middle East that are thousands of years old before any writing existed. And so we have been improving and optimizing systems as a society for thousands of years now. And we started off in caves, we invented the wheel, we paved roads. So we're always trying to make things a little bit better. And we've also tried different forms of money over our civilization's existence. You know, we used to barter and trade eggs for milk. We used to use pearls and seashells and feathers uh, cigarettes are arguably a form of money, if you ask anyone yeah. that fought in World War II. Re- yeah, <laughs> good, durable, scarce record-keeping system. Exactly. You know? And yeah. uh, we've seen a lot of systems collapse and fail, too. Yeah. And there are reasons for that, economic reasons, social reasons, cultural ones, and others. And so I think that that genesis is partially the, the key philosophical question, which is, okay, so we know that money is basically a collective system that we agree to use to exchange wealth. And if we're going to use the internet to exchange precious information and collaborate, maybe we need a more efficient global system to exchange wealth. And what would that look like? And Bitcoin sort of took the first shot on goal on this. And it drew on some powerful economic concepts and principles that we used to rely on and then sort of separate ourselves from. So for those that don't know, the world economy and many uh, currencies that were created by governments used to be backed by hard assets, things like gold. And then... We broke the gold standard and just are running what is called a fiat system now, where central banks basically create money, and then they lend that money out to banks, and it flushes through the economy. Now, there were some good reasons for doing that. Maybe you want a credit-based economy, increases consumption, more spending, more economic velocity. Those are good arguments, and I think we've been battle-testing those for the last 50 years. But we've been also running a pretty, I would say, arguably concerning experiment with how money is created and how much of it there should be. And so right now we're experiencing the highest rates of inflation in 40 years. This isn't a surprise to people that study economics because we've created, and I mean we, central banks around the world, have created enormous amounts of money, partially in response to the public health crisis and then also since the 2008 financial crisis. And it's not a coincidence that Satoshi came out right after that. There was a real crisis of confidence in the banking and financial sector. And Satoshi and the group that started the Bitcoin network referenced this crisis in the core code that they launched as an open source protocol, inviting anyone in the world to review what they'd come up with. And some of the key principles of the Bitcoin network were to create essentially a fabric um, that enables people to make peer-to-peer payments over the internet without counterparties. And then they layered in some really interesting economic fundamentals, including digital scarcity, which is probably one of the most important concepts ever because we now have a property rights concept for the internet. So if something is rare and precious and useful, it will always command a price. Mm -hmm. And so even though the Bitcoin network was kind of conceived in 2008, 2009 and then launched, it wasn't until about two years later that the first 
price for Bitcoin was ever cleared when some person on this web forum where we all used to connect on sold two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. And then all of a sudden you had a market. More tools were built. Yeah. The markets got more uh, complex. Bootstrap. And right. it yeah. bootstrapped itself. And one of the really interesting principles in cryptocurrency was drawing, specifically Bitcoin, drawing from what I would call like real molecular economics. Like we use gold because it's fungible. It's difficult to obtain. There's hard relatively, to yeah, hard to, how to, hard to counterfeit. There's relatively even distribution of it globally from a mining and how much of it in the Earth's crust there is. And so as a form of money, it has a store of value. It can be used in medium exchange, but probably less convenient these days as you can't shave off a little bit to buy a cup of coffee. But there were some good reasons why we use gold at an atomic and molecular level. Yeah. So anyway, Bitcoin invented scarcity economics, basically, and how the currency comes into circulation. So it's kind of important to understand this a little bit. Anyone can run software code that basically uh, supports the Bitcoin network and verifies the transaction history. This is called running a miner or a node, and that node holds a database on it, a database called the Bitcoin blockchain. And this is just a record of everything that's ever happened. And that record-keeping system stays in a constant state of agreement globally. And so today, your bank has a record-keeping system. My bank has a different record-keeping system, the one in Boston yeah. to Singapore. They're all trying yeah. to stay coordinated, and it costs a fortune to do so. And they've got all these people checking each other's work and filling out right. forms and double-checking right. that stuff. So I like to say... Uh you know, banks are are sort of regulated database operators. Yeah, essentially. that's a great way yeah, to and, and I also to like explain to, that. To note that I've noted this a couple times in my podcast, but at one point met the CIO of the of the Federal Reserve, and I said, "What's the what's the tech stack of the dollar? Like, what is the dollar?" <laughs> yeah. And he said, it's, "It's an Oracle database cluster." Right. It's like so. Actually, the dollar is just a, a, a set of records in a database. And after when fiat was created, of course. That literally is what it became. Yep. It was just like, what do we, what do we say it is? And what when are they want more, they it? go in there yeah, and quanti- they add zeros. Right. Quantitative easing <laughs> is a SQL insert statement. And then the records exist, and then they go say, I'll buy those mortgage-backed securities from you. And those records then get put into another bank's you know, database, and you know, and hence it goes, right? Yep. So that's really, it's to this point, though, is like not a lot of people realize like it is really just about you know, the, the record-keeping the scarcity of the records themselves, the durability of that. And then, again, who's allowed to interact with it? And I guess yes, you know, that's the, another the breakthrough deal. here is that it's not this kind of precious group of people that you know, get to interact with that centralized database. It's anyone. Yep. Anyone can just it's put com- a piece of software on the internet and they can be verifying those records and they can interact with it and they can transact. And it's a shared public you know, form of money that's just never existed. A financial utility for the internet. And the scarcity comes into the rate of inflation for the distribution of newly minted cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin in this specific example. So the total supply of the currency was hard-baked into the original network. And so there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins. Those are divisible by up to eight decimal points. And the rate at which they come into existence is basically decreasing every four years. And so just like it's harder and harder to mine gold out of the Earth's crust, um, gold still has utility in industrial use cases right. and other use cases. In theory, the price of you know gold goes up because utility and scarcity. Same is true of Bitcoin. And it modeled itself on these fundamental old principles, ones that we have built trust in for thousands of years, and basically applied technical 
terms to these things that are now yeah. widely accepted. And so the, the market access one is so big because financial services broadly globally have not been able to lift billions of people out of poverty because they can't access them at all. But anyone that has a smartphone now can download a piece of software that's completely free that gives them a tool to passport money anywhere in the world instantly, and in many cases, basically for free. And so, you know, there are many reasons to be intellectually and financially curious about inventing better forms of money. But one of the ones that's most important to me is just financial access. Mm -hmm. And if we bring billions of people into the economic influence of the internet, we will raise the standard of living for billions of people all over the world. And in many cases, billions of people that have been completely underserved or completely ignored yeah. by some of our colleagues, you know, just in the center of town here. And so what's so cool about this is many people now all over the world actually have a tool on their phone that gives them even better access yeah. to doing things like sending, receiving, securing, and trading digital forms of wealth than the people in Canary Wharf. And uh, to me, that is, a, that is a fundamentally amazing opportunity, and uh, it's going to increase financial freedom and increase financial prosperity globally. Big ideas. This is good. <laughs> no, no, this is great. This is like going back to the basics, which I love. And actually, maybe to connect into some of the economic theory and economic philosophy here, you know, I think a lot of this is sort of rooted in sound money theory. And I think this is a piece where I think you know, there's a huge departure in modern political and economic thought away from sound money theory. And there's been arguments and debates on this, I mean, in some ways since the 1930s, yep. when a lot of the sound money theory really took hold. It was the Chicago School was thinking about this, Austrian economic philosophers, economists, others, von Hayek, and others thinking about this. And, you know, I think part of the concept was a form of money that is built on a kind of known supply and a fixed supply, that it, it couldn't be abused in the way that governments abuse money, right? They dilute the money. You know, coinage classically was, you know, sort of diluting the, the actual quality. quality of the coin and a copper coin, obviously, or whatnot. But the sort of dilution of money, which was how inflation took place back in those days, but and then obviously once you know paper money existed that was theoretically gold backed like the governments would take all kinds of of actions that effectively changed the exchange rate of the paper money to yeah. the amount of gold and it was a, another form of inflation and but sort of sound money theory i think the place where economists often get i don't want to say hung up but but there's a big debate is on the one hand the theory is in a system of, of scarce value, it essentially forces fiscal discipline. Yep. It's sort of, by definition, because you don't have the ability to inflate, it forces fiscal discipline. And the concept being, well, that's a better system because actors in the economy have to live with it, within the bounds of that scarcity. And that, you know, from a rational economic actor perspective, sort of forces you to, to be able to, uh, to be both more efficient and responsible, yep. and that's a good thing. Now, on the other hand, I think there's a view that you need to, during periods of economic contraction, where you know the real economy is disrupted in different ways, you need to be able to adjust fiscally in order to you know deal with you know stimulating economic activity in different ways. And like that's, but that's like kind of a root issue. If you get into a debate with like 
most, I would say probably 85% of economists, they'll just rip down, you know, things like Bitcoin and say this, you know, you can't, you can't manage an economy if you have this because it's going to be deflationary and you're going to end up in a situation where that fiscal discipline is going to lead to really harsh economic outcomes for people. And I wonder, you know, is sound money theory on that basis, which is really where Bitcoin is rooted, is that right in your view? Do you think that that's right, that that level of fiscal discipline is what basically the world needs? Take the medicine, just take and adapt, and that's kind of what you have to live with? Or is there some other... Is there some other form of, of, of digital currency that, that uses a scarce store of value like Bitcoin, but also is something that can be, can be utilized in the context of fiscal and monetary policy? These are very challenging questions that are being debated by very clever people all over the world. Let me provide a little uh, personal view on it, potentially. I think, you know, we've watched our economies go through some fundamental reorganizations over the past 140 years. Um, Famously here, the Industrial Revolution kicked off the harnessing of uh, steam power to uh, broadly, massively increase our ability to to farm and process goods. And then we had the assembly line came out. We remember, you know, the model uh, Ford cars coming out one after another and being able to quickly assemble things. Then we had the computer revolution, which uh, we've sort of been growing up with. And arguably, there's a a new sort of reorganization happening, which I think is vastly misunderstood by policymakers. And we're getting, we're basically spent the last 140 years being really good at reorganizing molecules, things in the real world. We create them and we print them and we do them faster and make them more efficient. And we've increased access to all kinds of stuff. Um, But if you look at the stuff that's decreased in price, it's almost all market-driven. Computer chips, cars, technology has driven the cost of access to things way down. In markets that are interfered with frequently by politicians, whether it's healthcare, education, commodities, uh, subsidizing food production, all of these things are getting more and more expensive. And that's because of manipulation and changes to the economic policies and how they distribute some of the wealth that governments decide uh, to create in this Oracle database. So if we just take a, a a moment to think about what the next 10 or 15 years look like. To me, it's extraordinarily obvious that the internet is going to be the greatest contributor globally to GDP uh, by 2030. It will be itself the largest economy on Earth. And this economy needs a native system to settle and clear and transact precious information that's valuable. And so to me, that sounds a lot like some kind of money. Now, which type of money do you want to use on this system? I'm not sure it's my place to tell you or actually have a strong view on. So you can choose to use Bitcoin as a store of value on this system. There are now many other cryptocurrencies that are tinkering with these fundamental economics and running market experiments over and over and over again, forming communities and testing to see which one of these things works the best. And so while a lot of us got into this for a variety of financial and and intellectual and uh, technical curiosities, I think we all have to also accept that there's probably some new 17, 18-year-old kid who's dreaming up something that I can't even imagine the efficiencies that it could have that will work even more effectively than the tools we've been building and scaffolding on from the previous decade. So in short, 
you know, we got really good at organizing molecules in the last century. The next century is all about organizing electrons. And uh, that's kind of my foundational uh, view of where we are. And then my view is also we should deeply be encouraging and inviting yeah. innovation in this space. Right. Better, better money is better for everybody right. in the world. And this is, uh, it was von Hayek himself, right, who I think was writing a lot in the 30s. And his last published work was the denationalization of currency, which... Uh, now has a lot more meaning for people. In 1979, it didn't have as much meaning for people. It was sort of like considered like this guy's gone nuts. <laughs> and I think, you know, now we have seen it. It has happened. There has been a denationalization of currencies. It is just a fact of reality. Yep. People might want to put the genie back in the bottle. People might want to sort of say, I don't like this, or this is bad, or, you know, all kinds of things. But the genie has left the bottle. And the interesting thing about it is that it's not like some corporation did this, yeah. right? It's actually just math and software. Yep. And it's public, and it's public intellectual property. It's a public good. Anyone can use it, and it's just math has produced this. And I think it's also super important to point out that like, there isn't coercion happening here. Right. No one is putting a gun to anybody's head to use this stuff. They're right. using it because they find it so much more useful yeah. than the alternatives. Yeah. And so... Uh, to me, that's um, those are all positive yeah. components. Yeah, and I think that exactly. And uh, you know, this concept of competing currencies, we have competing currencies in the world today, and largely the competing currencies that are used, the competition basically is which governments are most trustworthy with respect to their ability to repay their debts. That is essentially why you would choose a euro versus a dollar versus a yuan versus a Argentinian peso, right? It's will the government be able to repay its debts, gives you confidence interval in the yep. currency, and more. There's network effects, there's utilization, there's all these kinds of things that drive the currency's adoption. But now we have this competition coming from non-government digital commodity money, which is fascinating. And as you said, right, I think... I've always been very, very reluctant to be a maximalist about any of this. Yep. And I think you've seen that from me over the years. Like, I'm, And you've I'm, taken criticism for that. I have. <laughs> I, I, I got hammered for that for years and years and years and, and, uh, and booed out of rooms and all this sort of stuff. But whatever. Um, <laughs> I think it's turned out to be correct, meaning there, that a maximalist position on Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else is not a good position to take because there is so much innovation sure. happening here. And it is evolving, and you have open source projects that are actually making changes to monetary policy. Ethereum's done this multiple times. Yep. And now, you know, if I put on my Ethereum Maximus hat for a moment, you know, the, the Ethereum Maximus will say, actually, Ethereum's got the better monetary policy now compared to Bitcoin in terms of scarcity, the actual inflation policy, yeah. and it's a more constant, more slow-moving inflation policy, and it, it, may, it may end up being a better, it has higher utility value, it's a commodity that has more use uh, because it powers this global virtual machine and all the things you can build on it. And so, again, just putting on that hat for a moment, and so there is this super intense competition, but as you said, we're only 10 years in. Ethereum is basically, you know, seven, six, five, whatever number of years of, of heavy kind of use. And, uh, and there's, there's breakthroughs happening all the time. Yep, and, and they will continue. I mean, I think yeah. to deny that improvements um, in innovations uh, should be just like the maximalist perspectives in, in society, I find usually, to me, draw relative danger to them. Yeah. And uh, I think... 
believing in a more improved future for anything, yeah. just having a perspective on that uh, just is more appealing to me. Yeah. I got into this because of Bitcoin, and I still think Bitcoin is incredible and amazing. Yeah. And I think it's solved for a very specific use case so far. I still think it's possible for it to solve for more use cases in the future. Mm -hmm. But interoperability across all this is also going to be one of the big stories, I think, heading into the future. Yeah. And so uh, at the end of the day, me, myself, my firm, do not take a directional view on any one of these things. We're very much about enabling uh, many outcomes here and ultimately just growing the pie bigger for everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. As you know, Circle, we've sort of taken a view that there's a period of time here where you know, the, the general utility of, of fiat currency remains significant and most transactions are priced in a unit of account that's constant and that unit of account component, stable value component has been really important for just everyday economic activity, sure. et cetera. Buying so coffee, buying plane tickets. All kinds of things, right? income, trade, et cetera. And so our view has always been that there's going to be you know, these kind of hybrid digital currency models. And originally we tried to do that by you know, sort of providing real-time convertibility between dollars, pounds, euros, and Bitcoin yeah. and use Bitcoin. I used you guys in the U.S. Yeah. It was by far it the best. Definitely the best. But our mission was to sort of, how do we uh, enable this kind of hybrid interoperability? Like interoperability to dollars, interoperability yep. to fiat, but all the openness of, of the public internet and the, the essentially the form factor of cryptocurrency. We've obviously made progress on that with USDC and, and, and that's growing. But it's, you know, I think coming back to some of the other discussions that we've had, I think our view is that over the long run, and you know, again, we're in the early days here, mm -hmm. right? Over the long run, I don't know if that's 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, there's going to very likely emerge new global digital currencies that act as a unit of account, as a, as a stable, relatively stable unit of account. And I don't think anyone knows what that's going to be. I completely agree. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. we yeah. don't. We can see the direction of travel, the exact plot, and the characters in it, and everything else yeah. is still a little TBD. But we are in a very interesting moment. You know, a decade out from sort of the genesis of all of this. Um, if we think about the 2008 financial crisis, the pandemic that you know we're all sort of um, emerging from. And some of the similar, I would say, economic concerns and risks in the the macroeconomic climate are pretty fascinating right now. To me, there's sort of three huge macro trends, any one of which, if it existed, I would be pretty bullish on the future for mm -hmm. uh, crypto generally, but they're all here simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually have an insert uh, player three here actually just recently. So for one, you have a macroeconomic climate where you have a billion people in wealthy countries around the world experiencing high degrees of inflation. And so there's a conversation right now happening, which is like, why is my milk getting more expensive? Yeah. My gas just doubled in the last uh, 12 months. Bacon, everything. And so, you know, am I being proportionally compensated for my work to, uh, to deal with this? How do I protect the savings that I've worked so hard for yeah. to make sure that they're not being destroyed by the increase in the cost of everything? And so that's, you know, people are having conversations around the dinner table about that. That's a really big deal. You also have traditional financial service providers that are looking to get yield for their pensioners, um, for their high net worth clients. Right. And these guys don't have a lot of their traditional packaging to go to anymore. Um, and so they're looking for ways to diversify and get into liquid alternatives. And uh, the most liquid alternatives in the world are by far cryptocurrencies today. And then the third 
but arguably most powerful trend is the cultural zeitgeist. The artists, the musicians, the creators of the content that we consume and entertain ourselves with are now having a discussion about how do they have a more ownership mm-hmm. over the things that they create? And is there a way to better align their fans and their communities to actually be rewarded for ingesting their content. And so the last 12 months have seen this incredible proliferation and discussion for or everything from NFTs to digital collectibles to uh, tokenized music collections, yeah. tokenized property potentially. And all of this is happening at the same time. And now we have a whole new example just in the last three weeks with a ground war in Europe. It's like, well, you know, we now have a whole bunch of new risk introduced to the global order, honestly, in the society of nations. And, you know, this is uh, sparking up another conversation. Ukrainians have seen over $100 million of crypto donations flow in, which is five times more than the United Nations pledged. So there are people all over the world coordinating capital, responding to the risk in the world, um, and making creative investments. It is, is absolutely incredible to be at the nexus of it all, and then also um, to be working on tools that I think extend and expand human freedoms, especially in the face of fighting autocracy, which is right on the doorstep here in Europe, you know, not that far from where we sit today. Yeah. I want to pivot a little bit into that geopolitical discussion, because I think it's really important. I don't know if you read, I forget the title of the book, but Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, uh, wrote a book with a former head head of product at Google as well. And it was, I think it was probably six, seven years ago, eight years ago. But effectively, it, it laid out a vision for the challenges that the internet faces mm. in the future. And I feel like, you know, Eric had a really interesting vantage point because he could kind of see what governments were doing with respect to the internet. And, you know, I think crypto and, and, and my own background with the internet has always been this concept of like this open global network that anyone can connect to, the sort of freedom of, of, of exchange of information without intermediaries, now the exchange of value without intermediaries, more self-sovereignty, yep. all these things, right? Super powerful. And there's embedded values in that, right? There are, there's embedded yeah, political philosophy. Yes. So there's embedded values in that, which, which I think resonate for many people in the world. And in Eric Schmidt's book, he, he laid out a vision. He made a strong case for a balkanization of the internet and that that was likely to happen. And what would that mean? And now what's happening in the world, there is a, I think just like the, the pandemic accelerated digitalization, right, in yeah. so many arenas, the new geopolitical crisis is going to accelerate balkanization of the internet itself. We've seen services in Russia completely shut off. You've seen tightening up of various forms of state control in China as well. And, you know, I think the one of the natural outcomes of the kind of economic interventions that have happened is that I think other governments around the world are going, wait a minute, like, do I have actual control? And what do I need to worry about here? And I'm wondering if we see, you know, the risk of that open internet kind of fracturing. And what does that mean for crypto as well? More, will we see, you know, stronger measures taken by governments, whether they're democratically elected governments or not, 
that are basically trying to draw harder lines around information freedoms or economic freedoms or other things in the name of national security, in the name of, you know, kind of drawing these hard walls? Is there a digital iron curtain that is going to be built? There kind of is already a little bit with China, but is there going to be a a bigger digital iron curtain built? And what are the implications of that? Well, I think you make some very valid points and raise huge concerns about the direction of travel on some of that. Um, If you look at the parts of the world that have put the most stringent censorship systems over information. It's places that are generally led by autocrats or dictators, and they want to control. They want to manage how people understand their narrative, and these should be resisted. And uh, I am really worried about it, though, because unfortunately, cryptocurrencies, speaking from a pure policy perspective, combine everything our leaders and politicians don't really understand about technology Mm -hmm. with everything they don't really understand about money. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it really intimidating to think about these challenges. But when I have these conversations, and I know you're doing the Lord's work in Washington and around the world on this, you know, it's to step back and get to those first principles again, which is like, what do we stand for? And what kind of world do we want to live in? And if we surrender a little bit of information freedom or a little too much, you know, control over our privacy or a little bit too much about how we spend our time or who we can talk to or where we can learn, we end up, you know, over time in dangerous outcomes. And so my hope is that there's a few trends that I think are, are positive. So switching to sort of the, the view of maybe there isn't some horrific technological dystopian future where countries are just mm-hmm technical prisoners of their own geographies, which I hope is not the case. You know, we've got some cool things happening. Starlink is a high ground. And again, projecting information from the space, basically to anyone that has a receiver to choose to opt into the internet that I grew up with. um, And the one that I think is one of the most powerful tools for human coordination of time and talent ever. And so, you know, it will still be possible to beam I think, into these other countries. But like ultimately, if I think about it from like a national security perspective as an American or as someone who lives in the UK, and I care a lot about this place, um, my wife is here, my family is here, I want to build a better form of money that competes with whatever those guys come up with. Because if they can't move it around, if it has no uh, economic velocity, if it can only be traded between Iran and China and Russia, like... I think they're going to commit economic suicide. And so we should head the complete opposite direction and build money that can you know, basically beam anywhere in the world instantly, be accessible by everybody who's on the internet, and uh, basically bring billions of people into the economic influence of the internet. And you do that, you live up to your values, you increase prosperity and wealth for people in the world, especially amongst the most vulnerable people in the world that didn't have access to financial services, depending on the circumstances of your birth or what your credit score was or what geography you were you know, born into, these tools can bring mass scale to basic systems of creating dignity in the world, which is working and earning things and developing wealth and creating new markets. And so to me, the national security argument is to lean in fast as possible. Right. Um, We make that case very, very (laughs) strongly as well. I want to ladder off of what you just shared and with what I think is also a point of optimism, which is you know, what's amazing about crypto is obviously we've, we've, there's these new you know, digital commodity monies, there's you know, stable value digital currencies, there's 
the, this infrastructure layer where people are, are innovating. But one of the breakthroughs, and this is something that drew me into this space originally because it was just sort of early ideas people had, which was when you have an infrastructure like this, you can actually create new kind of corporate forms. Yeah. You can create new organizational forms. And the organizational forms exist entirely in software-mediated ways. And the organization, the economic relationships between the actors in those, the funds or the treasuries of those, the governance, the decisions, all this can actually happen on an open, public, decentralized infrastructure where literally the same thing, just like anyone could you know, initially exchange, say, Bitcoin, now anyone can participate in economic coordination and decision-making coordination and information coordination on the public internet. And so, you know, the, the DAOs that are forming all over the place right now, I think we're it's just the tip of the iceberg, that we're going to see millions of these form in the coming years. And, and I would argue over maybe five years or so, some of the most successful organizations in the world that are producing some of the most exciting things in the world are going to be these new types of, of, of corporate forms. And that sort of transcends that set of kind of political and economic constraints. The world's going to need to adapt to that. But it is, I think, an optimistic view of what can come out of this. I'm so excited about those things. Traditionally, building companies, is, it's extraordinarily difficult. And coordinating people's time and talent um, is also very difficult. But the internet gives us amazing tools to do so. And I, I, if I look into the crystal ball too, I see that future. And we went from you know a bunch of nerds doing peer-to-peer yeah. -peer, uh, electronic cash payments on right. the internet to building decentralized, autonomous organizations. A group this year coordinated a bid to try and purchase a version of the U.S. Constitution in seven days. And that was just a little thing. You could imagine buying collections of art that were previously impossible to gain access to, fractionalized ownership over all kinds of things, market access for people to have opportunities to invest in things that would have never been possible just a few years ago. And so, again, this is like we build an economy that has more liquidity, more access to it, increase the standard of living for people around the world. This is all going to be tooled by cryptocurrencies and you know basically blockchains as native utilities for the internet. Yeah. And so... To me, there's nothing more exciting to be working on in the history of my life. And so, you know, I think about the big things that really changed the world. It's like the printing press completely changed our relationship to the, the study of, of stories. At one point, there was only one book in the world. And then this thing came that out. Led and led to politi fundamental political and economic changes. As yeah. Well, yeah. And then, you know, now we're in a whole other world where we can create this, to me, a more positive one than the one we inherited. To me, that's a big deal. Yeah. So kind of coming back full circle, origin story, you know, you're sort of see, seeing that and saying, wow, the impact of this is going to be profound. I want to work, take my career on it. Sounds like you were pretty excited and optimistic then. Sounds like you're even more excited and optimistic now. So am I. And it's a really, obviously a very, very special time to be uh, working on all this. Yeah, just got back from doing planning for the next year. We have more open roles than at any point in the company's history. Yeah. I'm sure you guys do Same. too. And so, you know, for anyone that heard anything that sounded interesting to them, you know, please come build with us. We're so keen. Uh, we need help from every background to create this better financial future for everybody. Awesome, Nick. Great conversation. Thank As you so much for joining. Thank you so much. It's great Absolutely. to see you. Absolutely.